Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome, Gary. How are you doing? Good, Mike. How are you? Good, 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 good. You know, we're, we're now officially one year into the pandemic. Wow. You and others we know have had their, their struggles with COVID-19. I hope you're feeling much better. Yes, thank you. With the anniversary, there have been a number of stories about how many of us have been challenged by the pandemic and its impacts on our economy, our mental health and society. There was a particularly compelling piece on 60 Minutes about the vast number of young people who are homeless, living in tent villages without easy access to food or medical care. There've also been several stories about the inconsistent messaging mm -hmm. from some of our politicians right. across the globe with regard to mass social distancing, rules for regulating how many people can congregate at a specific location and the like. And we've seen the itch also of politicians and society to kind of reopen quickly only to have to close down again as new waves of cases and deaths spike. Clearly, there are now signs of progress and hope with the vaccinations. Absolutely. That said, one item that caught my eye this past week was a piece in the New York Times by Dave Siegel, where he talks about the pandemic needs a Smokey the Bear. Essentially, Siegel makes the point that unlike other times of need, like during World War II, when there were effective campaigns in the US, for instance, encouraging Americans to buy bonds and to collect scrap metal for the war effort. He argues that through the pandemic, there hasn't been a clarion call or campaign. And he points to a couple of unsuccessful efforts and one in particular in the UK, just outside of London to try and quarantine people with COVID-19 into hotels. Is he right? Have there been effective public service or public health campaigns related to the coronavirus? And if not, why not? And what could have been done? I would say, Mike, that there have been effective ads. If you watch some of the ads produced by the Ad Council in the U.S., yeah. they're good. Uh -huh. And Morgan Freeman talking about, if you wear a mask, you protect me and therefore I respect you. However, that has been overcome by the political nature in the U.S., of the pandemic and particularly the Trump administration's playing of politics with things like wearing masks. I was, in reading that story you mentioned, Mike, I was just stunned that the latest Harris poll has only two thirds, 66% of Americans wearing masks when they leave their home. And so that to me is a, that is a result of the politics of the pandemic, not whether we have an effective public affairs. Well, camp. and we've seen one effective campaign right in the midst of Boston University, right? That's right. We had a very effective and it, and it worked. You know, the effort won't cut it campaign here on campus in Boston certainly got students and the, the results here have been not only of that, but the way the university has handled it. I just think it's that. Plus, in looking through some of the research in the UK, the high level of distrust in government, particularly yeah. by vulnerable communities, Mike, yeah. it yeah. makes it hard. Immigrant populations, for example, were mentioned. 
just makes it hard for people to take what the government might be telling them, even if it's Elton John and Michael Caine, yeah. which has yeah. been some of the PSAs there, to trust it. Well, and it also referenced a plan in, in, in Newham, it's a borough just outside of London, where they were trying to hotel yeah. in quarantine people who were identified and then their loved ones to quarantine in a slightly different hotel. And I think that's challenging to begin with. Yes. None of us like to be taken out of our comfort zone. But we're seeing a little bit of that, by the way, right now in Canada, yeah. where they've gotten tighter about restrictions about air travel. And as a consequence, if you fly in to a major Canadian city today, they actually put you into a hotel. In fact, you, you will have had to set up to go into a hotel and you have to stay there until after you get your test back. So you have to have taken a test three days before uh, you get on a plane. And then once you land, you have to take another test and wait until it's negative. Meanwhile, you're forced to pay whatever it is, $2,000, $3,000 in order to stay in a, a government-designated wow. hotel. So anyway, I think part of this goes to freedom. I also think another aspect of this has to do with the diffusion of media, right? I mean, during World War II, it was much easier to get out a consistent message yeah, to many yeah. people. And now you just have a plethora of different channels and media. And so I think it's complicated yeah. by that. You know, in like the scrap metal campaign, it's easy to appeal to people's patriotism. Yep. No, one is a, no one has done that. But I, I don't mean to pick on the Trump administration either. We've seen in recent times, really a resistance among administrations of both parties to ask people to sacrifice. You, yeah. you think of the long wars we've had in, in Afghanistan, Iraq. There was never really a sense that we all had to work together to sacrifice, to be victorious there and help the troops. So on a large scale, led by the federal government. Yeah. So on another issue, which is of, of interest to those of us who care about journalism, and sadly, it happens to someone who from afar I've, I've admired and, I, and I've liked a lot of his columns. But David Brooks, as they say with the New York Times, got buzzed this past <laughs> week. BuzzFeed, the global online news organization, took the New York Times opinion columnists and the Times itself to task for not sharing with their readers that David Brooks, beyond writing for the Times, was on the payroll of an Aspen Institute project, which actually David Brooks founded, but he also promoted in his column and, and also promoted, uh, at, well, wrote about Facebook, who had contributed, made a gift of $250,000 to his project there. Now, Brooks has resigned in the last week from that paid position with Aspen right. Institute's Weave Project, though he has said he will continue as a volunteer and will disclose his relationship should he write about the project in the future. And the New York Times announced that it is adding disclosures to past articles where David Brooks wrote about the Weave Project or Facebook. Brooks himself, who is a commentator on PBS NewsHour, defended himself on Friday night show saying the situation hasn't affected my journalism. I should add that by all accounts, the project itself, the Weave Project, is a noble yeah. effort. It attempts to discern ways to overcome much of what we've talked about on this program in terms of divisions that are so very apparent in America's political and social life. Weave, the Social Fabric Project, aims to build social trust to address the root cultural cause behind many of America's social problems. All that said, 
Were David Brooks and the New York Times wrong in not laying this out more clearly sooner? And were the actions taken by the Times and David Brooks the right ones? Oh, definitely. And and I, I would even look going back and 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 adding disclosure on on the columns is the minimum to me. I, I don't know about you, Mike, but aren't you supposed to, as a journalist, recuse yourself from covering any topic or, let's say, any organization in which you have a financial interest? Absolutely. Bro- you know, most being- companies, it's, it, as, as you know, every year you're supposed to declare any, you know, if you're especially if you're an officer of the company, declare any relation that you have that potentially could be in conflict. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Brooks is I, I love him. I, you know, he's a really, I think, one of the best columnists out there. You know, but when you do something that cuts across your brand, you know, David has written a really good book that I highly recommend about character. Yes. So this seems to be an oversight, but at the same time, David is smart enough to know what the rules are and that he yeah. probably shouldn't have been writing about you know, the- and My guess is too, I mean, there's a little bit of this, okay, the organization, the Weave Project has a website. It was clear he was listed as yeah. the executive yeah. director. So it wasn't like it was in hiding. And yet at the same time, you know, if I were the casual reader of one of his columns and came across something on the Weave Project, or maybe worse yet, if I found that he treated Facebook with kick gloves in part because of the contribution they had made to this project, I might have some moment of concern. Yeah, you know, in a Rhodes Trust at a time when journalism can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. So one action taken this past week that seems (laughs) destined to play into the 2022 political campaigns, believe it or not, is Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Last week, the company that oversees the estate of Theodore Geisel, whom we all better know by his pen name, Dr. Seuss, and by the way, Seuss is actually his middle name, announced that six Dr. Seuss books that contained depictions of people that were, and I quote, hurtful and wrong, end quote, would no longer be published, including the first book, where the pen name Dr. Seuss was used, a title that is, and to think that I saw it all, or just think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, which actually Mulberry Street is 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 like very close to where Geisel grew up in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Anyway, so so what made this a political moment though was that Republican politicians and their fundraising arms are now using this as an example of cancel culture, spawned by a liberal left intent on taking away people's voices and rights. The National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC, is sending a copy of the cat in the hat to donors who give $25 or more to GOP efforts to retake the House in 2022. (laughs) And in fact, if you go to their website and look at the online donation page, it reads, we won't be able to speak or think freely by the time the Dems are through. Chip in $25 now and we'll send Cat in the Hat right to you. What I wanna know, is this really a case of cancel culture? or the case of executors simply attempting to do what they see as the right thing. Said another way, will we scat from chat of cat in the hat? (laughs) Will we say scram 
and treat as spam green eggs and ham. Gary? <laughs> well, let me, let me jump in here, Mike. I'm gonna say one fish, two fish, bigger issues, I wish. I mean, <laughs> can't we talk about something more important in this country? This, look, Dr. Seuss is an important cultural figure. Uh, you know, it's part of every, most people's growing up. And the books are amazing for creativity and, and story. But this had nothing to do with Democrats. No. This was the executors of the Seuss estate yeah. themselves. And, and look, I invite people to look in the Mulberry Street book, the depiction of the Chinese person uh -huh. and say whether you think it, it is hurtful or not. It clearly is. Yeah. Seuss himself began, he, who died, I think, Mike, like 30 years ago. Yeah, 90s. Had, had actually altered that image to make it less offensive. He yeah. realized himself 30 years ago yeah. that it was offensive. And so I, I just wish you mentioned the 60 Minutes piece on homeless young people. There's so much to be covered. And, and I, I just think this is the cynicism of the Republican Party willing to take an issue that is reasonable and, and drive fundraising and division around it. And I'm sorry to say that because I'm a former Republican. Yeah, well, you know, and it, 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 it goes to, I mean, political fundraising in general, right, tries to play at the extremes, tries to grasp at cultural straws. I just think this is wrongheaded. Clearly, the executors were trying to do something that they saw as, as being right, trying to be sensitive to the audience, their readers. And anyway, I think it's pretty reprehensible. Can I, can I quote Seuss one more time? Or Sure, you know, go ahead. Like, you know, so just to describe what I see the political division and discourse in this country and the work we need to do, I'll quote from The Nervous Fish in The Cat in the Hat, which is, the mess is so big and so deep and so tall, we cannot pick it up. There is no way at all. <laughs> there that's is a lot of mess there, the, that's for the sure. The politics of this country right now. Anyway. Yeah. So within the next week, we'll be headed into the NCAA yeah. uh, basketball tournament. Great. And last week, we talked a little bit about apologies. And we just talked about, you know, people feeling uncomfortable. And all this kind of comes together in this next story. The coach of one of the top college basketball programs in the country found himself in a position of having to make a very serious public apology. Greg McDermott, the coach of the Creighton Blue Jays basketball team, a Big East Conference powerhouse, upset by his team's loss to Xavier University this past week, told his players after the game, guys, we got to stick together. We need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. Mm -hmm. I can't have anybody leave the plantation, end quote. Coach McDermott would later apologize and said that he made an awful mistake and said, the pain that I caused our players who looked to me as a mentor and as a leader, the pain that I saw in their eyes was immense. He went on to say that he, he, he loved them, but he apologized. And then the yeah. university has since suspended McDermott indefinitely, just as they go into the Big East tournament as the number two seed and as the NCAA tournament approaches, was McDermott's apology what one should expect of leaders? Did the university president do the right thing in suspending him now? And what does this mean for his players? 
You know, I have a friend, Eric Desenhall, who many of our listeners will know, who's a crisis practitioner uh, expert, really great. I love Eric. He has a little bit of a different approach that's a little bit more aggressive. He says of apologies, Mike, they should be immediate, unforced, sincere, and specific in terms of exactly what you did wrong and who specifically has been hurt. So when I, when I look at Coach McDermott's apology up against those standards, which I think are terrific, I think the apology was excellent. Yeah. And I, I think it was heartfelt. As to whether he should have been suspended, I don't know. I, I don't know his background and whether this is a quote-unquote first offense. Mm-hmm. If it were, I, I think a short suspension, if this is the first time something like mm-hmm. would be in order. Mm-hmm. But to your point about the players, it depends on whether you bring them back on how they're feeling about it. Like that yeah. would be my that would yeah. be my yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think you almost have to have a conversation with not only the players, but their parents, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. These are young, young, I mean, they're young men and, yeah. and 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 they have families that okayed they're going to Creighton. Creighton also has, I think, a higher order to to live up to in that, you know, it's a Jesuit. Yeah. institution. I forgot. And, and and so I think that's that's important here. And I think the message that the university even has to send itself to the players, right? That it's not going to tolerate this. Yeah. And, and it's going to be agonizing because if they really are close with the coach and now the coach has said this, on one hand, he's the coach has to be reprimanded. And yet how does that impact the players' hopes and dreams is another aspect of this that that makes it even more complicated and complex. There's a part of me that says, you know, he he should not be allowed to coach for the balance of the season and make the point that this is more important than a basketball game. Yeah. You know, when when I went to Georgetown, I was always impressed. John Thompson kept a deflated basketball on his desk at McDonough Arena. And the reason he did that is he said, you know, what matters first is character. And, you know, as, as young men come to play for this program, I've got to think about not just about preparing them for lifetime of basketball, but to prepare them for life when air is out of that basketball. Yeah. Interesting. A great yeah. symbol. Yeah. yeah. One last comment. Sometimes, you know, we do catch ups on previous stories. <laughs> and, and so this is kind of another follow up. Uh, we all often think moments in politics are isolated or fleeting. And I know the politicians themselves who get caught up in hot water almost always think the controversy is nothing and will soon fade. Imagine my surprise then this past week. I'm watching a La Liga soccer match. This is coming in from Spain. It's between Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. And a very excited broadcaster gets gets super excited as midfielder for Atletico, Marcos Llorente, revs by his defender, ultimately delivering the ball for a goal by Luis Suarez. And in the midst of him getting around the defender, the broadcaster says he's off to the races like a senator to Cancun. (laughs) 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 Anyway, really excited to hear from our guest, Frank Figliuzzi, who used to lead counterintelligence for the FBI.
Our guest today on The Crux is Frank Figliuzzi. Frank, you were a special agent for the FBI for 25 years. You rose to the position of assistant director for counterintelligence, a position you were appointed to by then FBI director Robert Mueller. Frank has retired from the FBI and today is the author of a really hot-selling new book. It's called The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. It's part memoir, but also filled with compelling stories, including for you adrenaline junkies, a cross-country vehicle chase. Many of you also know Frank from his work as an expert national security contributor on NBC and MSNBC. Frank has also written for The Daily Beast, Vanity Fair, The Washington Post, among others. Frank, welcome to The Crux. Gary, I'm glad we could do this, especially with all that's going on in the world, to find time to have this discussion. Uh, I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Yeah, Frank and I are old friends. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I see earlier, I just want to stipulate up front here, you were on Bill Maher's show in Los Angeles, and the staff put liquor in your dressing room, which you tweeted about. And I want to say up front, that we have no such perks here at the Crux. Yeah, no, I think I was told this was BYOB. So uh, <laughs> totally, totally. Good. Mike, Mike and I drink heavily throughout. <laughs> You'll notice that in a minute. So let me let's get started here. As an FBI agent leading some of the most sensitive internal affairs investigations, complex criminal probes in the country, did you ever think you'd write a leadership book? And why'd you do it? Yeah, quite the contrary, Gary. I, I had told people I would not be that guy who wrote the book about his FBI career. I kind of looked askance at many of those books. And what, what really put me over the edge was the agency I dedicated 25 years to and was passionate about was really getting bashed. I call it bureau bashing over the past administration. And look, we, we can get into the weeds on, on who's responsible for, for what in terms of bashing the FBI. But the bottom line is this. The men and women who come to work every day simply trying to protect us don't deserve the kind of branding that was given to the institution. So uh, the book is, is a counter to that. The book says, look, not only is the FBI what some of you are perceiving because of certain people bashing it, but rather it should be held up as a template of right. operating at a high degree of excellence when the stakes are the highest, the stress is the strongest, and it does so by preserving What's, what matters most to the organization. It's values-based leadership. So it's really a way of saying, hey, not only is it, is it not what you may think, it's right. a model and you don't need to spend 25 years in the organization as I did to glean some of the leadership lessons. Well, look, this book has been really well received. And to your point, Frank, the, you know, the, the reviews I read talked about in the way you just did, which is how surprising it is in its honesty, in the strength of its narrative, and the focus on values in a, as I say, an honest way. More importantly, just in case I ever write a book, you got Robert De Niro to endorse it. So <laughs> how, how'd you do that? This is this is quite a surreal story. So I'm, you know, you, you may know, I, I really come out of the security world. And, and after my corporate career, I did some consulting with a boutique security risk management firm. And, and that firm, our firm was running a special event in Houston, Texas, for the grand opening of a new Nobu restaurant. Well, some of you may know that Robert De Niro is a part owner of Nobu restaurants. And so uh, Chef, Chef Nobu flew in from Japan, De Niro flew in from New York, 
And our, our firm was asked just to make sure this, this went well because of the celebrity situation. So I, mean, I spend the night quietly off in the corner of this new restaurant. I, I let the team do what they're doing for protection. And at the end of the night, I noticed De Niro is making a beeline for me. And I go, this, this can't be. What, what's going on? And <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah. He comes over and he shakes his finger in my face and he goes, I know you. And I, I go, you do? And he goes, I watch you on MSNBC. I like your work. And I said, well, sir, I like your work too. And we exchange contact information. And then a couple of years later, when I'm writing the book, I go, hey, Bobby, how about, how about writing a blurb for the book? And he was very gracious to do that. Oh, that's so nice. What a great story. What a great story. Frank, let me first say thank you for your years of service. As Gary said, your book holds up the values of the FBI. You're referred to or were referred to in the FBI as the keeper of the code. What is the code and how did you help enforce it? So first, the, the notion in the book that really is designed to resonate with leaders everywhere is that the ideal goal is, is for every employee to view themselves as a kind of keeper of the code. The FBI does that exceptionally, exceptionally well. And yes, during times of my career, because it is part of your management journey in the FBI, I had positions over what many people would call internal affairs functions. So earlier in my career, I was a unit chief in the Office of Professional Responsibility. Much later, I became a senior executive and chief inspector over the FBI, that's kind of a massive audit and review program that the Bureau has. But the message in the book is this, and, and it's, it comes down to the seven C's that I talk about. And the second C, the second chapter in the book is conservancy. The notion that it is a team sport to preserve the values of any organization. And when I consult with companies, sometimes I'll stop in the hallway and ask an employee, hey, who here is responsible for ethics and integrity? Mm -hmm. and, and they'll often say, well, we have a compliance office or a department, you know, we have an audit staff, or we've got an integrity lawyer. And I find that almost amusing and sad at the same time, because in the FBI, yes, they have all of that. And yes, I was part of that. But the message in the book is the Bureau instills in every single employee that you are responsible for something much greater than yourself. And, and that's the, one of the key takeaways, I think, from the book. Yeah. So we're in a sort of a strange time now when the integrity of public officials, public institutions is in doubt. Can values-based leadership and performance help bring us together as a country, given the broad chasm that we see between the values of some Americans versus others? Gosh, I hope so, because once a team or even a country can't agree on its values, they're destined for failure. And so we've got to get back to this notion that collectively we agree on these few things, these core values. The first chapter of the book is called Code, and I chose it as the first chapter for a reason. Everything flows from an agreed upon code of conduct, which comes from an agreed upon core values mm -hmm. system. And again, in so many companies, I'll find up on a wall in the corner of the lobby, the, the mission statement or the core values of the organization, <laughs> usually covered in dust. And they don't, they don't take them down and refresh them and rethink them periodically. But we have core values as a nation. It's called the Constitution, the rule of law, three equal branches of government. And I, I think we're losing track of that. And it starts with education. When I, you know, when I watched the television coverage of the insurrection on January 6th, 
one of the first thoughts that went through my head is we've lost it. Are, are we teaching civics anymore to kids? Yeah, do we, exactly. do these, you know, do these people actually think it's, it's actually more complicated than that? Many of these people will tell you they thought they were the conservators of the code when they, when they breached security. So we've got to, we got to call timeout. We've got to reset and remind ourselves what the core values of the nation are, what the code of a democracy is. And to, to answer, it's a long answer to your question, Mike, to answer your question, I, if you fast forward to the last chapter of the book, which is the last of the seven C's, it's consistency. Yeah. And the message there from my FBI career is that in the middle of a crisis, which the FBI faces a crisis a week, a crisis a day in some field office somewhere, what they do is they don't abandon their core values, their training, their protocols. In fact, they cling to those in a crisis. And I give the example of when I was the on-scene commander of the anthrax murder, the first anthrax murder in the history of the United States, Boca Raton, Florida. We had to go send a hazmat team in of FBI agents and personnel, unprecedented, three-story building, 60,000 square foot. A man had died from anthrax, microscopic anthrax spores. And what we could have done was said, well, this is an unprecedented crisis. We've never done this before. There must be some new way to do this. And instead, we called timeout and said, is this a crime scene? Yes, it is. Are we trained in crime scenes? Yes. Is it a hazmat scene? Yes. Do we do hazmat scenes? We do. All right. So it's a hazmat crime scene. As a nation, we should call timeout and say, is this truly unprecedented? Haven't we been through a civil war, presidential assassinations, presidential impeachments, violent riots in the 60s, 70s? Yes, we have. If we cling to our core values consistently, we can get through a crisis. I give the same advice to corporations. Yeah. You know, two things, Frank, that you've said really resonate, I think, with Mike and I. This idea that everyone is, you know, in charge of ethics and integrity in an organization. We, we talk a lot about in the classes we teach, everybody's responsible for reputation as well. You may not think it, you might think it's Mike and my job, but it's certainly everyone. And, you know, then this idea that your values are what tethers you to reality or keeps you grounded during a, a crisis. I teach that in my crisis class at BU, and it's ironically for corporations, it's the time when people are actually paying attention to your values is during a crisis, right? So you better know what they are yeah. and yeah. how it guides your decision-making during that. You're, you're, so I, yeah. it, it's so smart. It's so smart what you've said. Well, well you're, right. you're right. You're right on on brand and reputation. And, and what I what I tell folks, you know, people, as you know, the corporate world tends to to parochially kind of stay in the corporate world for advice and models. But I say in the book, look look at this organization here called the FBI. You want to talk about brand and reputation? They live and die by it. And you want to talk about the high profile screw ups that end up on the front page of the paper every day? That's the that's the bureau. So it's it's worth taking a look at how they do it. Yeah. So you've talked about, you know, you and I worked at GE and knew each other from that, that experience, a great company, real focus on integrity and ethics, open reporting environment. We had a lot of acronyms, Frank, at GE, uh, the four E's and such, going back to Jack Welch. So you talked about the seven C's, you've talked about two, code and consistency. Pick another one. Tell us, tell us about another C that's in, uh, described in the book. Yeah, I mean, we've we've already covered, and it's great that this is so conversational. We we may not even realize it, but we've also talked about conservancy. And I, I, let me pick another one, which is credibility. Credibility is so wrapped up in what the FBI does for a living. And look, when an FBI agent comes to a citizen's door, flashes their credentials, and says, "I need your help," 
as they're doing right now, by the way, yeah. trying to prevent the next act of domestic terrorism in this country. If that citizen has to pause for a minute because they question the trust, what can I place my trust in this organization and this mm -hmm. person standing at my door? It literally could impact national security. Yeah. And, and so credibility is everything. And what I say in that chapter on credibility is that credibility is not about being perfect. I think so many leaders think that they must be perfect and hide mistakes from folks, but quite the contrary, credibility is about being passionate about getting it right. And when you make a mistake, being transparent, owning up to it, being accountable for it, and then telling people, this is what we're going to do to fix it. And I give examples from throughout the FBI's history of colossal mistakes. I mean, we had a spy inside the FBI for 10 years, Robert Hansen. You know, this was awful. He was working for the Russians for 10 years. But we, when it was time to grab him and handcuff him, we, we did it. We announced it was a screw up. And we announced a whole series of measures to mitigate against this ever happening. Well, I love what you just said about credibility. Something I'll steal from my classes and in my work, Frank. One quick question, speaking of tough times. You're kind of tough on Jim Comey, former director of the FBI in the book for handling of the Hillary Clinton email case. Why? Well, first, on a macro level, I thought I'd be remiss writing a book about values and leadership and doing things right, and then, and then conveniently not talk about the FBI's own senior leadership. So I felt I, I had to do it. And then specifically, I also felt it was important to give an example of somebody who is of the highest integrity and ethics. Jim Comey, is, un, is of unquestionable ethics. But here's the thing, even despite that, we can lose under stress. We can lose sight of who we are, what our role and function is. I believe that when he called that now infamous press conference at FBI headquarters to announce, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute Hillary Clinton for, for her emails, he forgot that he was the FBI director not the Attorney General of the United States. The FBI does not make prosecutive decisions. And in that moment, and I understand his thinking, I do. And he wanted to take this on for the AG. There might have been some trust issues with the AG. He felt he could take a neutral organization like the FBI, make this announcement, and all would be well. But in that split second, he politicized the FBI for about half the country. And then moving forward, when he had to announce hold on, we may have found some new emails in Anthony Weiner's laptop. We have to reopen the case that I told you we didn't need to have. And then on the eve of the election, he did it again when he announced we haven't found anything new in Anthony Weiner's emails. At that point, for most of the country, the FBI became some kind of politicized organization. For that, I, I call him out in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And reasonably so, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting looking at your book, and I and I love this book, uh, the FBI way. But even the very opening page, you quote Edmund Burke and Aristotle, and in quoting Edmund Burke, which is a terrific quote, and, and I'll quote it here. It says, "The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing." And then you would later write after the January sixth insurrection on January 21st, that in reviewing the insurrection, that we should not forget that Congress has done little to address the problem of domestic terrorism. What should Congress do now? Yeah, you know, one of the seven C's in my book is called clarity. And I, I am hoping, but I'm not optimistic, that that January 6th riot was going to be a moment of clarity, not only for the country, but for the Congress, because some action needs to be taken. So here's 
Here's where, here's where I get on my soapbox on the issue of domestic terrorism and the, the need for a law to address it. We are now over 25 years after the Oklahoma City bombing. The Oklahoma City bombing pulled off by two white guys. And we still seem collectively unable to view ourselves, people who look like us, as a threat. And the concern is that the intelligence, and I keep hearing people refer to January 6th as an intelligence failure. I say it was much more of a failure to act upon available intelligence. So the indicators were there, and we seem not to be able to see the threat that's right in front of us. The FBI director currently has said domestic terrorism and comma white supremacist violence is the number one threat facing our nation. Yet we still don't have a law against domestic terrorism. Chris Ray, the FBI director, told Congress most recently last week this was an act of domestic terrorism. What he should have said is, and by the way, folks, we don't have a law against it. So that's why we're seeing we're seeing people charged on January 6th. We're seeing them charged with trespass, assault, theft of Nancy Pelosi's laptop. Right. But we're not seeing the far graver charge that reflects the crime. The consequences don't reflect the crime. And and in the FBI, when we have gaps, consequences, laws are not there for the for the crime. We call it out to Congress. We say, hey, we need it. We need a federal trade secrets act. For example, I talk about that in the book. But we we don't have a domestic terrorism law. It is amazing because on one hand, don't we have laws against terrorism, but those are defined as as international acts, right? Right. As opposed to domestic ones. Yeah. uh, Yes, we do have international terrorism laws. So if you were to change the religion and the objective of a crowd at the Capitol that day, change it to Islam and change the mission to violent jihad. And all of a sudden, those people are going away for 20 years to life for international terrorism. I'll go you one further. We have on the books in the criminal code of the United States, a definition of domestic terrorism, and we still don't outlaw it. We have no law against it. And I, let me, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't serious discussions here about civil liberties, privacy, free free speech. There's all kinds of concerns about that, but I'm not even saying we should designate domestic groups as terrorist groups. I think that's fraught with peril. I I think that will be abused in a heartbeat. But I am saying this, if you define it in the law, how about having a law that says, if you do this, you violated the law? Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. I mean, so you have the event on January 6th, then we have an inauguration that was probably the tightest ever. I mean, most of them are pretty tight anyway. I've been to a number of inaugurations, but this was tighter than ever before. And then even for March 4th, this crazy date that QAnon or whomever selected, literally the House of Representatives canceled its scheduled day because of fear of domestic terrorism, because of fear of potential violence. So how worried should Americans be about continued domestic terrorism, whether it's from the right or for that matter, the left? Is this a sign of the times? And, and, and what can we do to counter it? Yeah, what, what a great and important question. I listened intently to Director Chris Ray's testimony on the Hill last week because he said some pretty amazing things that, that aren't voting well here. He basically said, this threat's out in front of us, that the, the aspect of social media, that where you can send violent rhetoric messages with the speed of you know, pressing the send button, is way out ahead and and is a huge part of how we got here. And combine that with quarantine, 
where people were sitting in front of their computer screens for record amounts of time all day, getting nothing but amplified echo chambers of violent rhetoric and conspiracy theory. And I'm telling you, there, this isn't going to go away overnight. It's, it's here to stay. So we need, I'm, a, I'm an advocate not only for a domestic terror law, but I advocate for additional regulation of social media platforms. And it's not controversial. The heads of those social media platforms are, are saying publicly they need help. They need more yeah. regulation. You, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook says he needs regulation, we better pay attention to that. And, <laughs> and so this all gets to your, to answer your question, there's no sign of this letting up. The, just because President Trump has left office doesn't mean that his, his base and those extremists who will commit violence on his behalf are going away. And if he starts a digital media empire of some kind, which rumor is he's going to, he will preside over an amplified echo chamber. Mm -hmm. I'm really given to wondering what you think about the team that Biden has around him, your assessment of the national security team for President Biden that he's assembled thus far. What are your thoughts about that team? Are they up to the challenge? Yeah. Well, time will tell if they're up to the challenge, but I will tell you this. Um, he's got the varsity in there. And I, you know, way, way back in uh, 16, 2016, when Trump was running, a lot of people, you know, talked to me and said, Frank, I really think people I respect, I think it's time for an outsider. I think it's time for somebody outside the beltway. It's time for a businessman. Let's, let's try this, you know, the grand experiment. And I, I, even back then I was saying, and now people may call me some kind of rigid bureaucrat from the FBI, but I was saying, you know, I got to tell you, resume matters. Resume and experience and knowing how Washington works. You know, if you're going to go find a surgeon for a procedure, you don't want, you don't ever say, you know, I want some outsider to do this. I, I want, I want well, someone who's done one surgery. Yeah, I want <laughs> who played, played one on TV, right? And, and that's not how you do it. That's not how you run the most powerful nation in the world. So Biden has selected people with deep, deep experience. That's going to bring stability. It certainly brings comfort to me and, by the way, to our allies. And it should stoke fear in our adversaries who know they're, they're suddenly going to get held accountable. Frank, I want to jump back to something you were talking about and sort of bring it into the realm of communications and journalism, Mike and my expertise. So disinformation, misinformation that's spread for political reasons or to stoke something like the insurrection, when does it become, this is almost, you know, probably an impossible question to answer. When does it become the responsibility of law enforcement agencies? And in other words, we're all working, people work in communications to try to make people more literate about what's real and what's not in journalism, what's real and what's not around facts and truth. How much of a role can law enforcement play in that conversation? Well, you're correct in setting this up as almost an impossible question, but it's got yeah. to be, it's got to be answered. And you know, I, I was not fully satisfied with the, the hearings so far and the answers on this topic. It is It has to be a marriage like never before between, and the good news is this appears to be happening, between the social media platforms and law enforcement. I don't know if you know this, but there's about 30,000 employees that come to work every day at Facebook under the rubric of safety and security. You know that's about the size of the entire FBI. And that, that's just that that's just at Facebook. So they get it, they're getting better at it, and they yeah. have the F, they have the FBI on speed dial every day, multiple times a day. Have you seen this? We're worried about this. But you're right, we've got to get some marching orders and parameters around, okay, what and, and there's there's careful concerns about civil liberties. 
What, right. what is aspirational talk with a guy on his couch eating potato chips? And what is actual violent planning and execution? And why is it we have to wait for the violence before we can now investigate and tell you what happened? They've got that line between the flashpoint between a guy saying he's going to do it and doing it. We got to get that crystal clear and err on the side of we're going to intervene before he does it. The gloves have to come off on this. And the gloves are off, as Mike referred to, on international terrorism. Let me assure you, if, you know, the, one of the reasons we haven't had a major act of international terrorism on our soil since 9-11 is because the FBI's all over these groups, chat rooms, there's undercover agents, court-ordered wiretaps, informants, right? They know, it be, they know it immediately and they stop it. We can do that here and still preserve civil liberties. So on a similar question, that's a great answer. And the balance there, to me, to me, Frank and Mike, this disinformation, misinformation through the immediacy and speed of social media, I, I think is what's the, the biggest challenge for this country, clearly from a security standpoint, because all you have to do is inspire one person to do something negative, something bad. And, well, and let me let me just real quickly, just to confirm what you're saying, if, if you study and, and Georgetown University has done this, if you study all the charging documents from prosecutors on everybody arrested for the Capitol event, the like 90 percent of them or more, the charging document, the indictment or the complaint contains references to social media. I mean, before and after. So these people are seeking not only inspiration, but then after they do it, they're seeking affirmation for what they've yeah, done exactly. on social media. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So you appear often, Frank, on MSNBC, which from our GE days, we know has a left-leaning sort of progressive reputation. I don't like labels, but I, I think that's probably accurate, at least in its prime time. Opinion part of the programming. Fox News similarly has a conservative audience. So what we're finding, of course, is that these kind of ideologically reinforcing conversations that go on every day are creating bubbles that people live in from an information standpoint. With that kind of, I mean, I don't, 10 million watching Fox at night, you know, people, something like that. I could have the number wrong. Can those two audiences ever agree on anything? This comes back to the core values and code yeah. question, doesn't it? And I, you know, there are things that I'm seeing that are encouraging that people can coalesce around. Uh, first, let me address this MSNBC versus Fox thing. I absolutely, there's no question MSNBC is probably rightly perceived as left-leaning, but I get I get concerned when they're in, mentioned in the same breath and compared to Fox only because of the level of disinformation, right, and falsehood. So I, I when I talk about re regulating social media, I talk about the possibility of assigning ratings to them for their veracity and the job they do at knocking off falsehoods. And, and that comes from the, the leaders of the social media platforms who say, if you can regulate and rate the safety of airlines in the United States, the near misses, the safety record, maintenance record, then why can't you do it for social media platforms? And even for, for cable networks and just inform people, you're about to tune into a show that is 80% crap just, right. just, just so you know right <laughs> all right so now on msnbc and others remind me remind me of the question gary I, well, I can, can we ever bring those two yeah audiences together and i yeah. it's a good point that you make is that they're both not the same right i, I should be fair about that on the level yeah. of accuracy and truth but yeah but i think we are there's if there's a bright spot on the notion that we might have common interests as a, as a society. You, you look at the look at the support. It may be a very quiet support 
around Biden's COVID relief package, right? right yeah. People are pretty much saying, yeah, my small business went out. My kid is homeless. I've got health problems. I can't pay the rent next month. And yes, by God, I hope my Republican Congress member votes in favor of this package. So there, there's some bright hope here. And I know this is controversial, but when I worked in the Bureau and worked terrorism, we spent a lot of time talking about anti and counter radicalization. And if you buy into the notion that in some way, shape or form, the last four years have been a kind of radicalization process for some people, then you have to ask about how you, you expose people to sunshine and get them out of that rabbit hole. Yeah. And one of the proven ways you do it in international radical terrorism radicalization is you show them what's in it for them. You show them the, the, the benefits of the other side. And if Biden can do that and Biden can say, do you need health care? Do you need help with college tuition? Do you want to start your small business up again? I have something for you. Then it's possible that people will come into the sunshine and go, all right, maybe these people aren't evil like I was told. Yeah, yeah. well, and you use the word radicalization. And, and I'm somewhat reminded that there are further extremes than what we see played out on MSNBC and Fox News. And, and those sources sometimes are are more of a stimulant than a Fox News or an MSNBC. Um, also, I thought what you said at the outset was so true in the sense that at the very core, what we need people to better understand is that there are some shared values that we have along the spectrum. We might have different points of view on how to engineer a COVID package, or we might have different ideas about, you know, what to do relative to various issues. But what's really important is that we work hard to establish what is at the core and to latch on to what vestiges of patriotism might exist across that spectrum. And in fact, the Washington Post writing about your book wrote, in a landscape of endless accusations, moral mountains become molehills and vice versa, making all sins appear equal when they are not. And as I read that, and I think about the conversation we've been having today, I, I wanna flip that a little bit because that's also the environment now that the FBI has to operate in. You know, so, what extraordinary or different measures does the FBI have to work through in order to continue to be effective in this kind of environment? I'm, I'm told by my former colleagues who are still on the job that this is the most stressful period in modern history for the FBI. And remember, these are people who lived through 9-11 right. anthra anthrax attacks. When they say that, that, that is a deep, deep challenge to get around. It's not just that there are 24-7 shifts in every FBI field office. It's that there's a, a morass of legal questions about how to approach this, how to stay away from civil liberties issues. But, but also, let's not forget, you want to add a layer of challenge to this. There were a number of active and retired law enforcement folks from around the country who showed up at the insurrection and may have even been a part uh, with regard to groups like Oath Keepers or Proud Boys, you know, military cops, at least 35 police departments, I believe at least have internal affairs investigations as to whether their guys and gals were there. What does that mean for the FBI? It means that they aren't even sure about who they can partner with 
or whether that police detective that they're partnering with was at the insurrection or not, and where the deep extremism lies and anti-government sentiment lies, it's a dangerous, dangerous world. Just simply knocking on a door right now poses a, a threat. And so there, there's, there's countless challenges, but I like, I like this focus on, I don't like it, but it's an important focus on, on the role of disinformation and veracity, because every time the FBI chooses to speak, and they're being extremely careful about doing it in a limited fashion, someone's going to get on some site somewhere and claim deep state, fake news, you know, and, and so they measure things very carefully, and they're very quiet. And then oh, you want another layer of, of real challenge. Go back to the testimony last week of Chris Ray on the Hill, and two senators asked him repeatedly about, are you collecting geofencing cell phone data from the well, Capitol? It's almost eerie, wasn't it? Right, right. And you know, you notice the response that you should play that in your comms classes for a bad for a press conference. They, you know, he danced. He danced. Yeah. You know, I, I, he actually played dumb at risk. You know, this is basically a human sacrifice at this point. He's he's playing dumb and ignorant. And even even I, for a second, I went, my God, he doesn't know if they're collecting cell phone data. I know they're collecting cell phone data. Of course they are. And you know what he was doing? It came out later. But, but I'm also looking at this as as, as almost a, a weird novel where yeah. the questioner, yeah, you know, exactly. engage with certain parties and they're yeah. asking the question right. because the, they're concerned that yeah. they're going to be tripped up. Yeah. How how often does a suspect get to question the FBI? And, <laughs> and it, yeah, and we, and it leaked. It's leaked out in uh, a major publication has said. They've they've learned that yes, of course, the the FBI has uh, filed a search warrant for what's called geofencing around the Capitol. And yes, further reporting, there are members of Trump's team that were in in contact in some form with the leaders of that insurrection. So yeah, it's a very complicated operating area right now. Well, fr Frank, thank you. This has been excellent, and thank you for being on the crux. This is a book. Uh, it's called. The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. I highly recommend it for any C-suite as a leadership book. You might not, you know, on face value, think of it that way, but I think it's just really outstanding. Big business, small business. Everyone can learn from this book, particularly, Frank, again, around this idea of values, who we are, why we exist, and how we execute that every day. So thank you. Great book. Thank you again for being on The Crux. I enjoyed the discussion, Mike and Gary. Thanks for having me. Please stay well, stay healthy. You too. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.